Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO Portland, and the time now is just a few seconds before 11 o'clock. Coming up on the Boo at 11.30, Making Contact looks at the cost of deportation on the tens of thousands of Guatemalans sent back to their country every year. Thanks, KBOO members, for your support to keep informed and get involved. Go to kboo.fm and click on Donate to become a member. And now, stay tuned for Health Watch, who will speak with the author of Dr. Yu, Introducing the Hard Science of Self-Healing. Stay tuned. KBOO Community Radio is proud to present the live broadcast for the 26th annual Good in the Hood Multicultural Music, Arts, and Food Festival. This three-day celebration kicks off Friday, June 22nd, with the Good in the Hood Parade and Festival continuing Saturday, June 23rd, and ending Sunday evening, June 24th. Good in the Hood is back at King School Park at Northeast Grand Avenue. Tune into KBOO starting Saturday afternoon on June 23rd for the live broadcast. More information about Good in the Hood can be found on the kboo.fm website on the home page. The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Hello and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, your host. Today we are speaking with Jeremy Howick, PhD and author of the book Dr. You, Introducing the Hard Science of Self-Healing. Jeremy Howick is an Oxford University researcher and author of over 60 publications and the textbook, The Philosophy of Evidence-Based Medicine, which spearheaded a new sub-discipline. He's a world-renowned expert in the study of the placebo effect in large-scale medical studies. He often collaborates about placebo treatments and the need for rigorous evidence with the National Institutes of Health in the United States, the National Institutes of Health Research in the United Kingdom, and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research in Canada, as well as Harvard University. His work has been featured in The Times and The Washington Post, among other print outlets, as well as on Sky News and the BBC. Jeremy Howick, welcome to Healthwatch all the way from England. Thanks for having me. First off, I just wanted to know what prompted you to write this book about the placebo effect, stress reduction, empathy, relationships, and self-healing in medicine. Yeah, I used to do a sport called rowing that some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with, and I was a competitive rower, and sometimes we used to win medals, and then something less fun would happen. We'd get dragged off the podium to get tested for drugs. It was kind of embarrassing to pee in a bottle, but also... It makes you paranoid because some athletes say that they get a positive test for taking something that their doctor prescribed. So when I developed an allergy, I was prescribed a a nasal spray. And on the nasal spray ingredients, it said corticosteroid. That word steroid uh, freaked me out a little bit. I said I couldn't take it. Turns out I could have taken it, but I didn't know. In the meantime, I was suffering. I wasn't sleeping properly. I became paranoid. I wouldn't make the team that year. So I went to visit a herbal doctor who prescribed... um, ginger tea and told me to keep my head and ha- uh, neck warm in the winter and I was in Canada at the time that's where I'm from and um, so I tried the ginger tea and it worked and I was surprised and I got my kind of academic geeky mind rolling 
I thought to myself, was it the ginger tea that worked, or was it the placebo effect? Was it the fact that the herbal doctor was so kind and so on? And that took me on a journey. It changed my life path. So I did, I've done about 15 years of research in the area. So you talk a lot about this hard science of self-healing. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so basically I've taken things that have previously been considered to be kind of soft, like positive thinking, doctors taking time to express more empathy, um, social connections, etc., and I've quantified the effects of those things in the same exact way you quantify drugs. So I've done now studies with tens of thousands of patients, a kind of study called a systematic review, which is a mega study uh, considered to offer the best evidence, and I've found that, you know, Positive thinking can reduce pain. When doctors take time to express more empathy, they can improve a range of patient outcomes, including quality of life, patient satisfaction, but also harder outcomes like length of stay in hospital and uh, lung function. Well, you outline that in the book. Often you have these examples of um, a doctor-patient interaction and how that would go. So how would an empathic doctor-patient interaction go For to explain that to our listeners? Yeah, well, the first thing is, Unfortunately, doctors are overloaded with paperwork. Studies show they spend between a third and a half of their time filling out paperwork. They're overloaded, so that doesn't give them the time to express empathy. Um, when they are, however, freed a little, up a little bit to, to do this, um, oftentimes patients come to see a, a doctor for, let's say, back pain. Now, pain is a complex um, phenomenon. I mean, some of the back pain even though there's no longer a physical lesion, the chronic pain has caused their brain to react in a way that uh, conti- they continue feeling the pain, but there's no reason for them to feel the pain. And this causes anxiety, depression, um, problems with their interactions with others. So a doctor, to heal those kinds of problems, a doctor cannot just address what the patient kind of complains about immediately. They've got to dig in a little bit deeper, try to understand the patient from the patient's point of view, um, ask about the condition, about how their life is going, etc., and then come up with a plan on base of that shared understanding. You know, I note that you actually um, are the director of a, a program in empathy at Oxford. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, I founded it, and I'm, I'm the director. So are you working actively to um, institute training programs for physicians um, in, in the United Kingdom and in the United States? Or what's, what's the trend now? Because, you know, doctors have a lot of responsibility, a lot of burden, you know, to, quote, save lives, um, you know, relieve symptoms, etc. And like you said, a lot of paperwork, plus there's a standard of care in this country around prescription medication, right? So how are yes. empathy programs being instituted to really change how doctors um, are able to practice and to bring back that healing aspect of being a physician? Yeah, well, see, what we're doing is we're empowering physicians. At the, at the first, some physicians say, well, Jeremy, you're telling us that we're being unempathic. It's the contrary. What, we're, what we've seen from the evidence, some of which I've gathered, is that, you know, that when physicians give more empathy, that's enough. So it can either enhance the benefits of any other treatment they give, and for many things that people visit their family doctors for, that's all they really need. They don't need a drug. So the model of the empathy program is for a dose of empathy to be introduced into all healthcare consultations. And we've begun to, we've piloted our training program um, a few times. Uh, we're also going to be operating, offering it in Canada in a few months, and so it's growing. The, the tide seems to be turning in, in, in terms of the evidence, that's for sure. And um, 
while many, you know, there's still some skeptics, but many of them are very happy to learn that we're kind of fighting their corner, saying, you know what, to the, to the managers, you know, you've got to stop overburdening busy doctors with too much paperwork and checklists and free them up to do what they wanted to do in the first place when they went to medical school, which is treat patients. You know, there's that old adage, physician, heal thyself. Um, and I was impressed in the book that it seemed to serve a function not only for the general public and patients, but also also for physicians. The, yeah. be- the benefits yeah, of empathy I mean, not only yeah. go for patients, it seems, but it also seems to have a benefit for the physician itself. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the worry uh, that some people express is that if a doctor's too empathic, too empathetic, they'll get burned out, take on the emotions of their patients and so on. In fact, the evidence suggests that um, it seems to be the other way around. The evidence is not strong, but it, it, the, when doctors take time to express more empathy, their job satisfaction goes up, and um, that reduces burnout and so on, and burnout among doctors, for the reasons I've said before, is quite high, um, both in the UK and the US. And um, the reason is that they get to, I've seen videos of doctors after I've trained them, I've trained them and watched the videos, of course, with the, all the consent forms signed from patients and so on, but watch the patients walk in there worried about a problem. They, they talk to the doctor. Often they go through a period of having tears. They come up with a big smile on their face. So when the patient smiles and is so happy, that's sort of mirrored in the doctor, too. They feel happy that they've made a difference. It's really something, isn't it, that we've lost these simple kinds of uh, needs that people have to be heard, to communicate, to connect. Uh, it sounds like that's what's happening in the room. Yeah. That's right. So there's two things to say about that. The first is that it's just like modern medicine is wonderful. So the book that I've written, Doctor, is not against modern medicine, but it's just like a glass of red wine is probably good for you, but 10 is not good. Now we've, oh, a side effect of modern medicine is we've lost the several ideas one that we can heal ourselves without doctors two that the doctors communi- communication with us their so-called bedside manner um, that is enough in many cases in family practice and it can certainly enhance the benefits of other of other treatments um, the other thing is yes the most surprising finding from my book was that the power of social networks on average studies with 300,000 people so that people have good connections with friends family and social groups live on average five years longer than those who don't. That's big, and especially, um, I don't know, in in the United Kingdom, but in this country with the recent um, uh, suicides of two very prominent people, uh, there's a lot of conversation about the public health epidemic of suicide. And, you know, really a lot of conversation about asking people, you know, if you're suffering, to reach out, to get help, to connect, etc., yeah, I mean, that's obviously tragic, and I mean, I wouldn't claim to to be able to solve the pain of so, some people, but that being said, I mean, yes, we should all reach out to, if we're feeling down, the evidence suggests that um, reaching out to someone will reduce many mental health issues, including depression, and if someone's lonely and they can't think of someone they can reach out to, they can do volunteer work, because there's some evidence beginning to show that doing volunteer work, first of all, it'll give you the benefits of social connections if you do it in in the context of a group. So if you go join a group to do volunteer work with, um, and also the active altruistic acts seem to have a beneficial effect for our mental health. Mm, That's that's really interesting. I wondered if you could just talk about um, the hard science of self-healing, as you talk about. How do people decipher what is good and hard evidence and, and when it comes to their own health care? 
Yeah, well, there's all kinds of claims. You know, nutrition is the biggest area where there's often contradictory claims. People say wine is good, wine is bad, coffee is good, coffee is bad. Um, and medical evidence, nowadays, it's pretty easy to search. I mean, you don't just Google it. If you Google for a type of study called a systematic review of randomized trials, um, and I explain those things in the book quite in a way people can understand. Basically, the idea is you have a fair race. If you have a new treatment and you say that that treatment works, it should be as good as something else you know that works or, or better than a placebo. And you need a kind of fair test of that, of that study. And then it's not just enough to have one fair test because one fair test might be a fluke. So you need more than one. You need to replicate that and then gather all those different replicated uh, tests together in what's called a systematic review. So people can do that on their own, and not, nothing's perfect, but that's just, that's if you find a systematic review of randomized trials, you're getting it pretty close. You're getting a very good guess at worst. And so that's that's like a lot of work, I can imagine, for someone who's not feeling well, you know, someone who's really suffering mm-hmm. with some or scared about their health condition. You know, the Internet can be kind of a big vortex, can't it? But it, what happens... That's why. This will, this will be a filter. Yeah. This will be a filter. And then when they walk into their doctor's office, let's say they've looked up some things, but they go into their doctor's office and you give some examples in the book of how, you know, a doctor... Uh, let's say there's heart surgery that's recommended. That's a really serious thing, of course. Um, you would go to one doctor, and then you talk about you know how to kind of decipher what the doctor's recommending to you, right? So yes, well, you can ask. Yes, yeah. Well, the first thing is is you, you know, the view of the book is that in general, you know, sometimes we need the most aggressive, uh, most you know potent treatments, but more often than we currently do. Uh, we don't need the medication we're taking. So most visits to family practice, for example, I mean, healthcare spending has gone up so much in the U.S. that the military has contacted me. They're saying that healthcare spending is becoming a threat to national security. Um, and meanwhile, um, life expectancy is going down in the U.S. for the first time almost since World War II. So all this medicine we're taking is not making us live longer anymore. In fact, it seems to be, um, in many cases, in many cases, damaging. So. If you, if you have uh, someone recommending a serious, you know, treatment for you and you've got the time, which you often do, it is a few days or a few weeks, you need to talk to them about it. And if they're unwilling to discuss other options and make you feel at ease about it, then consider changing doctors. And fortunately, there are a lot of great doctors who are happy to um, talk about this. So, for example, I had a knee problem. I had a scan. There was meniscal damage and a, and a bone damage. Um, they offered surgery, but I was writing this book. I said, I can't do the surgery because I'm, I'll be a hypocrite. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I tried something else. I, I said, well, what, what else can I try? My doctor's great, as many of them are. He said, well, you can try physiotherapy, but your damage is pretty bad, and we'll see how it gets on. I did physiotherapy, and within a few months ran my first full marathon. So that's an example of, kind of the kind of conversations people should have. So I'm not, saying, I'm, not, I'm not even saying I would never have the surgery, I just think we should try other less invasive things which are safer and cheaper first. Which actually goes with the doctor's credo, which is to do no harm, you know, and... Uh, That's right. Right. So it, it's okay to look for options. You talk a lot about just the power of self-healing, and we know, you know, these days with mindfulness meditation, stress reduction, yoga, there's a lot of conversation about um, how people can change their body-mind system. And, and you talk about that somewhat in the book, too, about, you know, just reducing the stress and, and, and that impact on our own self-healing about the production of um, 
hormones, endorphins, etc. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that to our, our listeners. Just what is our power Absolutely. of self-healing? So basically, when we're under stress, it's the fight-or-flight response. If you've got to fight a wolf, if you have to fight a wolf, you don't want to be digesting your food at that time. And we all know that. If a dog barks at you, you don't feel hungry. So when you're under stress, your immune system and your digestive function and your, generally your ability to rebuild and heal is suppressed. And the antidote to the fight-or-flight response is the relaxation response, which uh, by that I take it to mean also meditation and so on. So by doing things that relax you, like meditation and mindfulness, you deactivate the fight-or-flight response, which suppresses the immune system, and you activate the part of the nervous system which um, reboots your immune system and your digestive abilities to, to heal more optimally. And this has been shown, so if you practice this kind of thing on a regular basis, it reduces heart disease. It also reduces anxiety. And ideally, people should do it for, you know, 20 minutes twice a day. But even doing it for a minute, just watching your breath for a minute, you'll start to feel the benefits immediately. So you have a lot of these um, uh, exercises for people to do in the book. I mean, that we're, you know, you know because it's just doing it one minute every now and then won't really change the terrain of our bodies, like you said. Um, so... Yeah, you, what, what do you recommend for people to do, like the most important things you think that uh, people could do to to kind of change the uh, internal chemistry and, and promote more self-healing in the body, just on a daily basis even? You're right. The most important thing is finding time to relax, to kind of deconnect. So just like your, your, your mobile phone, the computers are very powerful. You don't plug them in. They stop working properly. We've got to plug ourselves in. And you're right that one minute's not enough. I do more than a minute, but I mean, um, it's like anything else. If I want to become a, a fast runner, if I train one minute a day, I'll still improve compared to doing no running every day. But if I do more training, I'll get better. So anything is better than nothing, and um, the benefits will be clearer thinking. So you'll become more efficient in your daily life, more creative, and the time, the time you spend doing it will pay for itself. Um, we can talk about other things as well that people can do in their daily lives. So you were talking about the, the production of endorphins, or as you call it, our body's our yes. natural morphine, and, and that yeah. effect on, on uh, soothing pain. What? That's right. So basically, I mean, common pain pills people take for back pain and chronic pain barely outperform placebos in the kind of mega study I was just referring to. Um, Meanwhile, positive thinking, when a doctor gives a patient a positive message, something like, you know, you're likely to feel much better in three weeks, which is almost always true for back pain, um, that will activate the patient's brain in such a way that the patient begins to produce their own, um, activates their inner pharmacy and produce drugs like endorphins, which just means endogenous morphine. And the good thing is you can give yourself a positive message, and the easiest way to do that is, that's been shown to work in studies, in scientific studies, is uh, the best possible self-exercise. So just imagine your best possible self in some time in the future, six months, one year, or two years. Imagine that best possible life and then write it down and then begin taking steps towards that. that and that'll, do the, that'll have the same effect or a similar effect as if uh, someone you trust, like a doctor, gives you a positive message. Hmm. So is this uh, what you would call... So this is positive thinking. Talk a little bit about the placebo effect um, and... And, and how that works. Yeah, the placebo effect was discovered in modern times by an American doctor called Henry Beecher. He was a doctor in World War II, and legend has it that he ran out of morphine and began giving um, soldiers 
saline salt water injections, and they felt better. Um, no one knows if the legend is true. What we do know is that he, he did a mega study showing that one-third of patients on placebos seem to get better. Now, he was probably exaggerating because some people get better anyways, whether or not they take a placebo or a treatment. But subsequent studies, including some of mine, have shown that placebos do work for many common things, especially pain. So, And the way they work is there are three main mechanisms. One is positive thinking. So it, when a doctor gives you a pill and says, tells you, this is going to make you feel better, um, you know, you do, that, that activates your body pharmacy. The second thing is this empathy, the power of a doctor's empathy, because the pill is not given in a vacuum, it's given in the context of care. And the third thing is people can begin to monitor themselves, and self-monitoring for many things improves some outcomes. And, and how, um, and you talk about that many, a large percentage of doctors actually give placebos. Yeah, my study in the UK found that 97% of doctors admit to having placebo at least once. That was higher than other countries, but even in the US, it's 50, 60, 70%. Yes. What they do, you do? And it's not just sugar pills. Yeah. Just go on, yeah. No, I was just saying, what do you think prompts a doctor to give a placebo to a patient who's coming in expecting a treatment or a medication? Well, the two things I, I've interviewed some doctors, and the one thing is, um, some patients who are known to be opioid addicts and they ask for it, they say their shoulder hurts, the doctor will give them a salt water injection instead of a morphine injection. Another scenario is if a, a patient comes in with a common cold or a flu, which cannot be cured by antibiotics, but the patient insists on an antibiotic, they say, okay, I'll, I'll give you an antibiotic. And in that case, the antibiotic is not a placebo for some things, but for a viral infection like a cold, it is a placebo. Um, doctors blame patients, but apparently patients say, well, no, if the doctor took time to explain to me, I wouldn't have demanded the antibiotic. So empathy, again, uh, has a role there. Right, so it creates a clear communication, clearer understanding, and probably creates uh, more patient engagement, I would think. That's right. So another example is um, preoperative patients in one study, before they had, had their operation, half of them were given education about endorphins, the body's natural painkillers, and half were not. But after the operation, the patients who got education about, about endorphins, most of them did not fulfill their morphine prescription. Only 10% did. Whereas all the patients who did not have the education, so the ones who were not aware of endorphins, all of those patients did fill their prescriptions for painkillers. It's so tricky, isn't it? Because patients, you know, patients, especially people who are suffering and afraid when they're sick, they just want yeah. relief. They just want cure. And yet, absolutely. But cure and healing are—they intersect, but they're also different. You talk about that. Yeah, there are two things to say about that. The first is that um, they are suffering; they are looking. But sometimes, I mean, it's ha it can be quite dramatic, to be honest. People, you know, you go there. Let's say that someone has knee pain or shoulder pain or back pain. Things where placebos seem to work. A good doctor can have a big pain-relieving effect just with the way they communicate with it. Just like putting them at ease, saying, you know what, it's not going to be, it's not going to, it's not disaster, it's going to be okay. Just that alone reduces the anxiety, which reduces the pain. The second thing is to make sure that uh, anyone listening understands, I'm not, I'm not saying that if someone has stage four cancer or they get in a car accident that they should get a, you know, a positive message. That's <laughs> not what I'm talking about. I mean, um, we're talking about, thankfully, most problems most people have are not that serious. 
And then the second, the last thing to say about that, even really serious things like end-of-life care, so many people who are going to have bad prognoses, they're towards the end of their lives, they're 90 years old, they're given 20 pills, some of them, I mean, more, half the elderly Americans have more than five prescription pills, some up to 20. The lives are a nonstop ritual of popping pills and managing side effects. So for these people, I mean, the empathy and positive thinking and connections won't save them, won't stop them from, from you know, passing on. But what it will do is improve their quality of life and maybe even reduce the number of medications they need to take. Mm. That's so important, isn't it? I mean, because... Well, it's, it, it's really important, yes. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you've done a lot of research. What type of research do you think is needed to really help change people's health outcomes um, in terms of, you know, this think, field of placebo, empathy, et cetera? Yeah, I think that the two things. One is we're taking too much medicine to the point where it's, cause, it's doing a lot of good, but it's doing a lot of harm. Medical error is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. right now. And other developed countries are not far off. Um, so it, it's doing harm. It's becoming a threat to national security. I mean, one in seven boys who can't see children in school are diagnosed with ADHD and given methamphetamines. The, the street name for that is speed. Now, some boys, it's mostly boys, do need the medication, but not one in seven uh, young boys do need that. So what we need to do is realize that I want people to change the way they think about their bodies. Their bodies are amazing and much more amazing than we think at healing most things most people visit a doctor for. Um, I'd love doctors to realize the power of their communication. Um, and, you know, that's what I'd like to see. People change their perception and therefore change their, the way they interact with medicine. You don't need medicine for most things they currently get medicine for in family practice in some other areas. So there needs to be a big wave of empathy and communication and education. And reali realization that the body is way, you have a 30 trillion cells in your body. I'll tell a story about, there was a doctor, a true story, a doctor in World War II, the same British one. He was the only doctor in a prisoner of war camp where there were 20,000 soldiers living on 600 calories a day. That's like one Big Mac the whole day. There were epidemics of typhoid, diphtheria, they all had diarrhea, and he had no medicine. At some point, he complained to the, the head German doctor. He said, I need more doctors. The head German said, no, doctors are, are superfluous. And guess how many, how many died out of, out of 20,000? He thought that hunters would die of diphtheria alone, but after a year, only four died, and three were because of German bullet wounds. They were trying to escape. So it made him realize that the, you know, it wasn't because he was a great doctor. It was that humans are very resilient. Um, so the human body is amazing, and we can do things with our minds to reduce the stress which boosts our immune system, and that's the kind of thing I want to get across. The message, our bodies are amazing. We can do things to enhance our self-healing abilities. And then by all means, use medicine when we need it, but that's a fraction of the time that most people currently engage with the medical profession. So wouldn't it be great if in every conventional doctor's office there was someone there <laughs> who could work with patients on stress reduction, um, movement, um, communication, and really help people. Because, you know, the wave goes back and forth, right? It ebbs and flows, and uh, we see that change has happened Absolutely, before. Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, some, some clinics are, like the Cleveland Clinic is starting, starting to do that. And be one. I just thought of an idea. I mean, there's some people who are lonely who need the power of social connections. They could volunteer in a doctor's office to teach mindfulness or some movement. Um, 
The way even waiting rooms are designed has to change. Right now, you go in there, you don't feel good right away. The receptionists are often rude. So, yeah, it needs to be redesigned. It doesn't cost more money. It's just doing things differently. Right. That's a big thing. It's yeah. it's hard to change, isn't it? It's good, but it's hard. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, l- luckily, I'm having fun doing it. Yeah. But, um, it needs more than me. Yeah. And thankfully, people like you are also helping to spread the word. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and we know that there are people. Uh, in just look at the uh, the spread of mindfulness based stress reduction over the past forty years, and you know we know that that yeah. things can change. Well, Jeremy Howick, how could people get in touch with you? Get your book. Um, just let, let our listeners know your contact information. Yeah, I'm all over social media. My name is Jeremy Howick. The surname is H-O-W-I-C-K. And I've got a website by that name, so jeremyhowick.com. And my book, Dr. You, is available at all the bookshops as well as Amazon. That's probably the easiest way. It's called Dr. You, and it's by me, Jeremy Howick. It's quite easy to find. <laughs> well, Jeremy Howick, thank you so much for being with us today on Health Watch, and I, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. We've been speaking with Jeremy Howick, author of the book, Dr. You, Introducing the Hard Science of Self-Healing. Thank you for listening to Health Watch today, and you can listen to this episode and more episodes of Health Watch online at kboo.org slash healthwatch. Tune into KBOO on Tuesday, June 12th from noon to 8 p.m. for the 20th Annual Homelessness Marathon. Programming includes reports about the fight against poverty for women, youth homelessness, indigenous homelessness, solutions that are working in Finland, and much more. Please call in to talk about your own experiences at 866-LEFT-OUT or 866-533-8688. That's the Homelessness Marathon, Tuesday, June 12th from noon to 8 p.m. here at your community radio station, KBOO Portland. I'm Monica Lopez, and this is Making Contact. This week, the cost of deportations through the lens of one Central American nation that sends migrants north, Guatemala. About 2 million Guatemalans live in the U.S. According to the U.N., that's more than 10% of Guatemala's population. But half of those here lack legal status, and tens of thousands of Guatemalans are being deported back to their country each year. The question arises, are the countries these refugees left prepared for an influx of returnees? On this edition of Making Contact, independent journalist Maria Martin explores that and other questions, including whether some Guatemalans are still planning to migrate north, even given the hardening of immigration policy in the United States. Here's her report. Outside a white stucco building operated by the Guatemalan Air Force in Guatemala City, some people wait for what they call El Vuelo de los Deportados, the flight of the deportees. Each plane will bring from 75 to 130 handcuffed Guatemalans back to their home country. By the beginning of 2018, the number of these flights had been increasing to up to three daily, says Carlos Lopez, administrator of the Guatemala City-based migrant aid organization Casa del Migrante. 